Hi, everyone. Good day. This is Nadine Morency Moss here with uh, a special guest that I'll introduce in a few minutes with Lincoln Walters. And um, I'd like to share, uh, and first and foremost, welcome back to Secrets of the Cell. Uh, first and foremost, I want to share with you an experience that I encountered last week, uh, last week, uh, Tuesday, to be precise. And this is something that is a little bit unrelated to um, Secrets of the Cell podcast, but because it hit home, I wanted to raise this issue and to bring awareness because I shared this with a couple of my colleagues and they were able to um, not relate, but they, it, it definitely raised the flag for them to look a little bit more into it. Um, so last week, Tuesday, on what I thought would be a typical day, I went to go pick my daughter from school and I was stopped by the police. Uh, I was stopped on Linden Boulevard in Southeast Queens in St. Albans. And I had my five-year-old daughter in the back of the car. They asked me for my driver's license and registration. And when I handed over my information, they came back to the car and said, okay, do you have anyone to come and pick up your vehicle? And the only reason why we're allowing you to do that is because you have your daughter in the car. Uh, they actually were in the process of arresting me, which I had no knowledge of. They said that my license was suspended in addition to, um, uh, then they went back to the car, the vehicle to look a little bit more in detail and found out that I had a warrant for my arrest as well. So I was floored. I was, I was beside myself because I had no clue or knowledge of having a, a warrant for my arrest in addition to not even understanding why they were taking me in, not, not even knowing that my, my license at that moment was suspended. Um, and what occurred was my dad was able to thankfully come and pick up my daughter and pick up my car or else it would have been impounded. And they actually arrested me. Um, I called, I had a number of phone calls. I called um, my elected official, the councilman Danique Miller, I contacted, I was contacted by my, my sister's uh, ex-boyfriend. He's a detective. Um, then I, I contacted my dad. I made a number of phone calls before they actually took me in. And ultimately, I had to go to the precinct. And I received my phone call. I asked my dad to contact my attorney. And um, thankfully, because I know, you know, thankfully I know people and thankfully I know Lincoln Walters, I was able to, my dad was able to send him a text message from my phone and he immediately, he was in Long Island, in Hicksville, Long Island to be precise, and he was able to come out to Queens to the 113th Precinct and um, try to get me a desk appearance. Unfortunately, because the warrant existed, which he had no knowledge of, uh, they were not able to release me on a desk appearance, uh, which will explain a little bit detail as to what that is. So... All of that to say is I want this to be an issue. I want to raise awareness on um, driving with a driving with a suspended license without your knowledge or with your knowledge and having a warrant. So right now, I'd like to introduce a special guest, uh, Lincoln Walters. He is an attorney. Uh, he um, he's a real estate attorney. He is a criminal defense attorney as well as immigration and. Um, matrimonial. And uh, Lincoln and I met through a transaction, uh, a client of my, a mutual client of ours. Uh, he was representing her as she's the seller. And I was representing, I was representing her as the, I was the listing broker and he was her real estate attorney. And ironically, for some reason, I think we met even in our past life, figuratively, figuratively speaking, uh, because 
well, I'll, let's not talk about that. But <laughs> I think we did meet long time ago, and eventually, ultimately, we met through again through uh, a mutual client. And uh, Lincoln and I, we we connected immediately, and thankfully, I, I was able to contact him. And he, I knew, uh, I remembered that he did criminal law. So I want to again thank Lincoln for being here. Thank you for having me, Nadine. And the reason why I wanted Lincoln here is because Lincoln is extremely knowledgeable about criminal defense, and he was able to, again, come to my rescue. So I want to uh, ask you several questions about the process and the legalities of what I experienced and what the audience can um, take away. Okay. So um, the first question I want to ask you is, how can one find out if they have a warrant for their arrest? Okay, so generally speaking, normally when a warrant is issued, you have different types. Mm -hmm. In your case, you had what's called a bench warrant. And pretty much a bench warrant is issued when you have a court date. Mm -hmm. And for some reason or another, you don't make it to court. And at the day you, your case is to be heard, the judge has an option to either issue a bench warrant which says, I need this person to be brought in front of me as soon as possible, or they can stay the bench warrant, which is exactly what it sounds like. They can say, I'm not going to issue one this time. And they would tell the counsel for the defendant to make sure the defendant is there at the next court date. So in your instant case, if you had a warrant from a long time ago, 2002 or somewhere around that time, yep. you may not have known. And the reason why you didn't know is that whatever day you had to go to court, for whatever reason, you might have forgotten or maybe your attorney didn't remind you or maybe for some reason that particular court date could have been adjourned and you were given a new date. Those are all possibilities. And whatever that date for appearance was, because you didn't arrive, they issued your bench warrant. So how would you know that you have one? The simple answer is, generally speaking, you are sent something in the mail at some point from the court advising you that you missed a court date and if you don't appear on whatever date they now give you, mm -hmm. that a warrant will be issued for your arrest. Okay, okay. So as I shared with you even prior to starting uh, this episode, um, I lived in Long Island, and the, the warrant was issued in 2002. So I lived in Long Island. I was in school full-time. I was working two jobs. And ultimately, I moved. Uh, we did forward our mail to the other address, but for some, then I moved again. Right. So apparently I did not receive this letter. Right. And please share what so, you shared with so, me. <laughs> so that, that happens more often than not. And a lot of people assume that it's the court's responsibility to notify you. And I'm going to tell you what I tell all my clients, that ignorance is no excuse to the law. That's something that's said all the time. Right. And it really just means exactly what it says. If you have a court date, the court expects you to keep a calendar, whether it be on your cell phone, whether it be on your calendar on your fridge, whether it be on your calendar <laughs> that you have in your desk, you know, wherever you keep your daily calendar, the judge expects that defendant to put that date and make sure they're there. So that being said, the reason why they do that is if you have a counsel like myself, I may have two or three court dates per day multiplied by five or six or seven, depending on the jurisdiction. And if that's the case, they don't expect me as the attorney to remind you as the litigant. They say that the litigant is supposed to remember. That being said, as you stated, if you were young and you moved several times, the reality of it is you just <coughs> might forget or you might never see the notice. So what do you do? Generally what I tell clients is if you know that you were either arrested at some point 
or you were ticketed at some point mm -hmm. in whatever county. So let's assume right now we're in Kings County. Mm -hmm. So if you were given a ticket in Kings County, what you can do is you can go down downtown Brooklyn to 120 Skimmerhorn Street and you can go to the clerk. And when you enter on the first floor to the right, there is what they call the clerk that deals with warrants, right? And you can give them your name and your date of birth and they'll look you up in the system to determine whether or not you have any open warrants at okay. the time. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you raised that issue because I, on my way here, I'm thinking, I'm like, what other ways that can an individual find out if they have a warrant? And I Googled it and I found a database where you can actually enter your information and pay like a small fee right. and see if you have a warrant for your arrest. Right. But what happened is I just pulled up my name and a whole host of things came up, but that didn't come up. A warrant for my arrest in New York. Right. So, so here's my thing, you know, yeah. not, not to be the type of person that tries to tell somebody not to use computer-based research. Yeah. The problem with a computer-based research is you're dealing with a private entity who is trying, presumably, to get access to a governmental agency's database. So what I would tell you to do is to go straight to the source. Whether or not you want to use your cell phone, I know we all have the habit of wanting to use our <laughs> cell phone because we're on it 24-7, but you're actually better off going to the courthouse. Now, I just happened to mention... King's County Court, because mm -hmm. that's where we are. Mm -hmm. But you're not actually restricted to the county where you live. So because New York State has a New York State-wide database, you actually can go, in theory anyway, to the nearest criminal court in whatever county you happen to be in, ask them to run your name and your date of birth, and it should give you all of the warrants across the state of New York. Okay. So okay. that is actually, in my opinion, I tell all my clients, a more efficient way to do it. And not to mention, I also believe it's just more trustworthy because now you're right. getting it directly from right. the source. Right, exactly. Agreed. So why isn't there a statute of limitations on a warrant? Because, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, my warrant was from 2002. Right. And then, I again, I was when I was sitting in that cell, I was appalled, I was frustrated, I was annoyed, and I was just thinking, like, all these thoughts coming through my head. And then I... I'm like, wait a minute, I can't wait to find out, speak to you, number one, and number right. two, I can't wait to find out that this was an error. <laughs> because, I, again, I had no knowledge of this, so right. the first thing you told me was you had a client from 1988 that that's just correct. found out they had a warrant. So right. why isn't there such a limitation? So, so that's a very good question, Indiana. And, and here's the short answer. The reason why, generally speaking, warrants do not have an expiration date mm -hmm. is because if you think about it, if you were given a court appearance, whether it be a desk appearance, which is called a, exactly what it sounds like, when you get arrested, instead of going through booking, which happens at the police station, then going to central booking, which right. is normally connected to the courthouse where you're being arraigned, and then going in front of a judge, right. they waive the latter part and allow you just to show up on a specified date, and then you do your arraignment at that appointed time. That would be what a desk appearance ticket is. Yeah. But separate the desk appearance ticket. If you had a warrant, in your case, from 2002... There's a presumption from the court that at some point you were notified, but there's another further presumption that even if you weren't receive, you didn't receive any mail and you didn't receive a phone call, because nowadays they actually call you. 2002, they probably didn't do that, but okay. now they will call you on the phone okay. to your listed phone number. Okay. But what they will say is, look, it's your obligation as somebody at some point who was given a ticket and told to appear to court to follow up and do your due diligence to make sure that you don't have a warrant. Okay. But the reason why the warrant remains open is that in most cases, what the court is saying is, look, we gave you a mandate to show up in front of us to answer to these crimes that you've been 
allegedly charged with. Right. And based on these charges, we think it's important that you come and you answer for your quote-unquote crime. So in answering for your crime, part of that is having your day in court. So if you don't show up, there's an assumption then that at some point, whether it be one year, two years, or in your case, how many years? Oh, 17? I don't <laughs> 17 know. Almost years. two decades. Right. That's crazy. Right. Almost two decades. Yeah. The, the argument is at some point you may want to address that ticket. And you have to understand it does make sense because what would happen if you didn't do that, let's assume there was what's called a statute of limitations where after a certain amount of time, the warrant went away. Right. What most people would do, especially people who are very adept criminals, mm -hmm. they would find themselves in different states maybe, mm -hmm. or they would hide in different locations until that time period told, mm -hmm. and then they would go there along their merry way. <coughs> and then basically that would be a way for them to go around the system. And the court doesn't want to encourage that. So the idea is as long as the warrant is active at any given time, if a police officer pulls you over or if you are run, meaning your information is run by a police officer or other agency, they can see the warrant and bring you in on the open warrant. One of the things I was, I'm just, again, perplexed about is I've been stopped before mm -hmm. between 2002 and presently. Right. Why is it now that it appeared out of nowhere? Okay. Why didn't it appear previously? So that, that's a very good question. And, and again, there is a real simple answer to that. Jamaicans have a, a saying that puss and dog don't have the same look. Well, wait, wait, say, wait, 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 wait. Let's so, say it a little slower. So Jamaicans say <laughs> puss and dog don't have the same look, which is another way of saying that a cat and a dog are not the same animal. It's, it's the same thing. It applies in your case. And what that really means is even though you had this open warrant, Every time that they ran your name in the database, uh -huh. just by pure luck, nothing else, it didn't come up. So it, uh -huh. when you were issued the warrant in 2002, if you were pulled over 10 times that year, for whatever reason, when the police ran your name, it didn't show up in the system. However, almost 20 years later, they happened to run your name. And by your luck, right? That ran out. It ran out. And it showed up. And it's really that simple. And in the case of my client who had the warrant from 1988, he had been driving around, renewed his license several times, was living a productive life Correct. as a American citizen, but he never knew. Right. So again, the short answer to your question is the best way to know that you don't or do is to go down to the court of law in the county where you reside, give them your name, give them your date of birth, and have them run your name. So would you recommend somebody do that annually, semi-annually? or? So your, yeah. I, I will tell you this. If you are a driver who gets a lot of tickets yeah. or if you are a type of person who for some reason has frequent contact with the police, yeah. I would suggest that you do it. Maybe annually you might want to do it on the anniversary of your birthday or somewhere around that time okay. or maybe towards the end of the year. So you know that you've cleared that year successfully or maybe in the beginning <laughs> of, the of the new year, depending on, you know, how, how you try to set your schedule. But I strongly suggest you do it frequently. Those of us that don't really get pulled over very often, myself, I haven't gotten a moving violations, knock on wood, in 20 odd years. So then for me, it's less likely because I don't have tickets that are out there. <clears throat> Similarly, it's not just tickets though, right? Because some people actually have warrants based on monies that they owe to New York State for tax, right? Mm. You can also get warrants, and again, there's different types of warrants, but you can also have warrants for your arrest based on not paying child support. There's different things that could generate a warrant. But most of the times, when we say not paying child support, it's not because you owe the money. It's because at some point you were taken to court and you were supposed to appear and answer why you didn't pay the child support. You mm -hmm. didn't show up, and again, wow. the warrant was issued. Wow. 
So I'm glad you raised that issue because one of my clients, I shared the, 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 this information with her and she mentioned that she received a warrant for, I believe, I don't know if it was ECB violations, but she owned a property. She um, walked away from the property. And then uh, when I say walked away, I, I, I presume, I think she mentioned that she gave the property back to the bank. She no longer had any interest in the property. She gave it back to the bank, was obtaining tickets, sanitation tickets on the property. And ultimately she got um, violation, a warrant out for her arrest. Had no knowledge, right. and again. So th that's a good example. So an ECB is just an environmental control board right. violation, right? Um, a simple example of one would be a sanitation ticket, right? right? Where you own a house, because remember, when you purchase a house, you have the deed, the deed is in your name. So any sanitation tickets that are given to that address then go to the registered owner, which right. would have been your client. Right. Now, in a situation like hers, she actually shouldn't have had a warrant that was issued after the date that she sold it to the bank or did a deed in lieu or whatever she did when the bank now became the Correct. new owner. So the question is, was her warrant issued from the time she owned and it never showed up in the system mm. until after she gave it to the bank? Or was it a clerical error and when the, if the bank took it over in <coughs> January and mm. then the ECB was issued in February and then the warrant was issued after that, right. then in that case it was just a clerical error. So timing has a lot to do with it. Got it, got it. Makes sense. So for those of you out there, homeowners, this, this is not just the warrant issue. It's not just related to my driving experience. It's related to um, you being a homeowner and having EC, ECB violations, which I just found recently found out with this encounter that you can, you can actually obtain a warrant as well for your arrest, minding your business, not knowing and being stopped and having being detained by the police and having to go through the system, which is horrific. So. And, and, let's, and let's be clear. The system is set up in such a way that it's not supposed to be a pleasant experience. So, so what I often tell clients, and again, you know, prevention, right? They always say an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure, right? So do you want to deal with the issue after you already have the ailment or do you want to try to get ahead of it? So in the case of a warrant, again, if you know that at some point you've had police contact or if at some point you were given some governmental instruction mm. to do something, to pay something mm -hmm. or to show up to court and you decide that you're not going to go or for some reason you forgot to go, it is more likely than not that mm -hmm. a warrant has been issued for your arrest. Mm. Now, assuming that that's the case, you don't have to wait until you're pulled over. You can actually be proactive and you can go down and what you want to do is you want to get that warrant vacated. Mm -hmm. So what's that process like? Mm -hmm. Let's assume it's criminal court. You would go down. You try to remember which part of the court you were in. You probably wouldn't know. So what you actually do is you go to the clerk. The same warrant clerk would then tell you, you have a warrant that was issued on this particular date, and it comes out <coughs> of this courtroom, and the language in criminal court is part. So you would find out which part you're supposed to go to. Then you would go to that part. Preferably, you want to go with an attorney, because if you have an attorney like myself, I would walk the information up to the court officer and say, look, I'm here with my client. They have a warrant from whatever year it is, right. and we would like to get it vacated, and we would like to address the issue. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't have an attorney, you could do the same thing. You walk it up to the court officer. The court officer is then going to tell you, okay, sir or ma'am, you have to wait until we can find your file, and then you become what's called an add-on, which they add you on to the court's calendar. So that's what happened in my case. And that's what happened in your case. Okay. So once you're added on to the court's calendar... At that point, the judge now has the original information of the original charges. Mm -hmm. They now have the authority to vacate the warrant. And more importantly, depending on what the charge is, they can offer you a plea or some sort of adjudication mm -hmm. to settle the issue at that very moment. So can we? Can you also share with the audience uh, exactly what you recommended, you know, or what you thought would be the best 
solution for me. Okay. So you, you have different, if your license is suspended, you have different types of violations or different types of crimes. Mm -hmm. So when you have a vehicular crime, mm -hmm. it is governed by the vehicle and traffic law. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have what they call unlicensed operations, that's vehicle and traffic law, so VTL 5091, mm -hmm. that is what they consider to be a violation, which is not a crime. So in the criminal statute, you have violations, which are crimes that are punishable up to 15 days in jail. You have misdemeanors, which are crimes punishable up to one year in jail. And then you have felonies, which is anything for one year and over. Mm -hmm. So if you have a suspended license, which is the 5091, and it's preferably the first time or maybe the second time, but it's not something that you've done repeatedly, mm -hmm. then what I would recommend, like in your case, is the violation is not a crime. So meaning if you plead to the 5091, mm -hmm. When you are taking your plea bargain, mm -hmm. right, you do something called allocution. The judge is going to ask you that on whatever date and crime or time, excuse me, you were charged with the crime, did, were you guilty of that crime? Mm -hmm. So in your case, you would say, yes, on 2002, whatever date was, I was guilty of unlicensed operation. Then you would pay the minimum fine, you would pay the court surcharge, and then your case goes away. So. Sure. If you are charged specifically with unlicensed operation and you're given the opportunity to get a violation, going forward, if you ever go for a job and they say, have you ever been convicted of a crime, you would not have been because crimes in New York criminal law are misdemeanors and felonies. Right. A violation is what they call an infraction. So when you're filing or, or signing paperwork or filling out paperwork, you can say that you've never been convicted of a crime. Now, that is... As people would say it, I, I, don't, I don't use this term, but a jewel right there. A lot of people um, don't know. If you don't know, you don't know. Right. But, you know, this information right here that he just provided. Um, oh, thank you. The information that he provided right here is huge, especially people who are seeking employment. Or, again, you're eventually, whether you're... But the reason why it worked in my favor is because I'm a licensed realtor and right. I do have to renew my license every two years. It's my license is governed by the state and that's asked on my application as well. It's as, as a realtor, you're asked, have you ever been, um, what's the question? Convicted again? of, sorry. Yeah, so convicted of so let's be right. clear. So generally when you work in either the public sector or the private sector, right. especially if you have a licensing situation, <laughs> you're normally asked two basic questions. One, have you ever been arrested? Right. Which, Unfortunately, a lot of people have to say yes, because at some point they may have been arrested. But more importantly, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Right. As long as you have not been convicted in New York State anyway of a misdemeanor or a felony, you can safely say that you have not been convicted of a crime. And that's mm -hmm. why it's very important, especially when you are taking plea bargains in criminal court, right. to know not just what you are being charged with, but you should also know what you're being offered. And if you have a job that requires a license, there are certain restrictions. So like realtors, similar to attorneys, we can't be convicted of a crime because it affects our licensing. But it's not just realtors, not just attorneys. For example, if you work for the Board of Education, mm -hmm. similarly, you cannot have a criminal record. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you work for the medical examiner's office, there's so many agencies, especially yeah. governmental, right. that require that you do not have a criminal background. Right. And it's essential when they run their background check that you're able to say that you've never been convicted of a crime in order to maintain your employment. Exactly. Exactly. I had to pause right there because I want you guys to really hear this. Extremely important. Uh, one of the things that you also uh, do is you practice real estate law. And uh, in terms of real estate law, I know that um, a lot of people out there have uh, they're looking for good referral, a good real estate attorney, matrimonial attorney, 
Um, you don't do bankruptcy. I don't do bankruptcy. Okay, bankruptcy. <laughs> no. But a state sale attorney. <laughs> right. So I want you. I want to stress how important it is to have a good resource, a good source. And Lincoln is one of the brightest, one of the most knowledgeable and resourceful attorneys that I've ever met. And I've met a number of attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That, that, that means a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've been doing this for almost uh, 13 years now. And uh, Lincoln is amazing. So, uh, oh, also, I did not, uh, I, I failed to mention that he also practices uh, law in not just Jamaica, Queens, but Jamaica, the island. Uh, can you share a little, about your, a little bit about your practice in uh, Jamaica? Right. So, so as, as, as a practitioner, I am admitted in the judicature of Jamaica, which is just the jurisdiction of Jamaica. What basically happens is once you are a former English colony, especially within the West Indies, mm -hmm. the CARICOM region, you can go and further your studies at different universities. I happen to went to Norman Manley Law School, which is in Jamaica. That allows me to be barred in the island. And my practice in Jamaica consists of not just criminal. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of probate work. I do a lot of real estate work. And I do a lot of matrimony and divorce. And the reason why that works is for those of you that are here in the United States and you may have a family member, a grandmother, aunt or uncle, somebody that passes away. Well, the property is located in Jamaica, but you're here in the United States. Right. Part of what my office does is we give you the opportunity to come do the consultation right here in Brooklyn or at your house. You know, we, we do travel. We make house calls. And then once you feel comfortable and you engage my services, I can then probate the estate. If your person is a decedent and they died in the island of Jamaica, you would probate in Jamaica. Okay. If they died here in the United States, say Kings County, I would do the probate here in Kings County. Once you're given, if they have a will, they would get what's called a letters testamentary. I then take the letters testamentary and file it with the court in Jamaica for them to recognize your authority. And then I can go ahead and proceed with a real estate sale in the island of Jamaica. That's huge. Uh, and how long does the process take out there? Because I know out here it could take... Okay, so similar, similar to New York, probate okay. in Jamaica can take a while. Part of the process for Jamaica that's different from New York is that if you have the letters already from the United States, meaning the person owned property in Jamaica mm -hmm. but died here, it's faster because you already have obtained your letters testamentary here, and now you're just asking Jamaica to basically honor them. Okay. Now, if the person died there, then it's a little more complicated because now you have to make sure that, just like here, mm -hmm. that you find all the relatives, make sure that they're notified and let them know if they died with a will, whether or not they have any rights under the will, meaning if they're a beneficiary yeah. or a devisee. If they die without a will, then it's an administration. Now you have to look for blood relatives, and there's a certain order that you have to follow to notify them of their potential inheritance. Did, uh, all right, so the probate process here, I believe, it, so is it nationwide? or So like, in other words... The probate process in Jamaica, do they have to come look in the states as well to see if they're... Right. So, so generally what happens is when you're doing a probate, it really depends on where your beneficiaries live. Mm -hmm. So if you say I, I draft a will and I pass here in the United States, but I own property in Jamaica, but right. I also have relatives in Jamaica right. as well as the United States mm -hmm. and as well as England, depending on what has left in my will to these different beneficiaries, it is going to be the job of the executor if it's a male or the executrix if it's a female mm -hmm. to reach out to all interested parties and get their okay, for mm -hmm. a better lack of a way of saying right. it, to then go ahead with the probate. Okay. Now, if for some reason they don't agree or any other beneficiary disagrees, they have a right to be heard in court. Okay. So if, you, if they agree, they would sign what's called a waiver of citation, 
If they disagree, you would serve them a notice of citation, letting them know that they have an opportunity to come to court to be heard as to why the executor or the executrix that was named in my will should not have that position. Now we just did a state 101. <laughs> so we actually uh, talked about a number of different uh, disciplines of law right now, which exactly. is amazing. Um, I, you know, I really want to thank you so much for your time. I appreciate everything that you just uh, shared with the audience. Now, can you also share where your office is located, okay. both here and right. in um, So in, in New York, I have an office located in the Mill Basin area, which is located at 5808 Avenue N, Brooklyn, New York. One one two three four. So for those of you that are familiar with Ralph Avenue, it's a block and a half from Ralph Avenue. For those of you that are familiar with either Utica or Flappish Avenue, it's about ten blocks from Utica and maybe fifteen blocks from Flappish Avenue and, and Avenue N. Mm -hmm. In Jamaica, I operate out of two locations. I have a location in New Kingston at Eleven Oxford Road, which is in the Central Financial District. And then I also have office space on Duke Street, which is right next to our Supreme Court, which is on King Street. Oh, I didn't know you had two locations in Jamaica. Yes. That's, <laughs> he, he loves to be... He, and, and, and please share also with the audience how often you're... You know, <laughs> right. So, so they know. okay. Yeah. So for those of you that do have uh, litigation issues in Jamaica, part of what people are concerned about is whether or not, as an attorney, we're there frequently enough. So what I generally do... Besides myself, I have a partner that resides in Jamaica mostly, in the western part of Jamaica, in Savlamar. Then I also have co-counsel that exists in Kingston as well. But the good thing is with the communication age and what we live in and the advent of planes, it makes it very easy. So generally, I can leave on a night flight here at JFK, say 9.30. I get to Kingston by around 12.30, 1 a.m. And then I'm able to go to court for 9 a.m. And I'm able to jump on another 2 a.m. flight and get back to the United States generally by 6.55 or 7 a.m. the next morning. And he's being extremely truthful right now because he's <laughs> he, he he's in Jamaica quite often right. and he's able to be here for his clients here in New York. So please trust that he will be there wherever he said he's going to be. Right. In addition to you being uh, available for criminal court, you you know also share with the audience just in case. Right. So, so also, I, here's the thing. You know, I, I always tell people, I, I think that your relationship with your attorney is very important. It, mm -hmm. it's, no, it's no different to me than the relationship that you have with your, your physician. It's no different in a certain way. And, I, and I don't, I'm not trying to be blasphemous in any way, but it's similar to the relationship that you may have with your pastor. It's, it's, it's about trust. And when you're an attorney, you really need to represent people to the best of your ability. So in doing so, what I try to do anyway is make myself accessible. So what does that mean? I have a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week service. So even if you get arrested at three o'clock in the morning, you might not hear my live voice, but if you call my service, they will take a message, they will send it to me immediately, and generally my hours are varied, but I will see it as soon as possible, and then I will call your family member or loved one and try to get you out of central booking or wherever you happen to be as soon as possible. But also why I do that is that it also allows me to travel to my clients. So even though I am a Brooklyn-based attorney, I do, I've done cases as far as Buffalo. I frequently do cases in the Bronx. Today, I happen to be in Queens. So I also don't have an issue with traveling to my clients' homes or just meeting in a central location. Again, the idea is to deliver a quality service, but one that they will then turn around and tell their friends and family about. There you have it, everyone. So, Lincoln, I really appreciate your time here. I thank you so much for talking to the audience about the different dif disciplines of law. And if anyone needs to reach Lincoln, please contact him at... 347-435-0329. Again, 
435-0329. And for those of you that would like to contact me via email, it's L Walter. So L W A L T E R S I I at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for tuning in. If you if you need to reach me, feel free to uh, send me an email at jmorealty at gmail.com. That is J-A-Y-M-O-R-E Realty at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in. Take care. Have a good night, everyone.